Welcome to the Social Fishing Podcast. My name is Reese Creed. I'm a passionate angler and I want to share as much as I can about the sport we all love. On this podcast, we speak to incredible anglers, sharing a wealth of priceless knowledge, all to help you reach your fishing dreams. Thanks for joining us today. Now let's begin. This is episode eight of the Social Fishing Podcast, and it's my goal to find and interview some of the greatest names in fishing from around the country. And I was lucky enough for this interview to sit down and talk to one of these greats, the one and only Steve Starling. Now, many of you may know him as Starlo, and there is a high chance you may have read one of his articles or watched a video he has presented. Steve will be one of the most renowned fishing writers in the country, and it's great to see how dedicated and passionate he is about sharing all that he has over the many years. Steve has written thousands of articles for a range of publications. He co-hosted his own TV show with Bushy. He has featured in a range of TV programs and more recently has produced a new show, A Fisherman's Life with Starlo. And he has also launched his own online platform called Fishotopia. He's also presents on stage at many of the shows that feature around Australia. I know that I have learnt so much from his articles, his shows and his videos that he's produced over the years. I watched him when I was growing up, so it was a privilege to sit down and to be able to talk to him today in this episode. Now, I absolutely loved this episode of the podcast as Steve was more than happy to share what he knew. We began the episode talking a little bit about where he was from, how fishing started for him and how he started out in freelance writing. I then asked Steve about how he continued to write full-time and follow his passion and he also went on to share some tips for young anglers wanting to do the same today. He touches on how much media and content has changed over the years and he talks about how different it is now to get sponsorships or write as a freelancer. What he shares as someone who has been there is extremely valuable if you want to go down the same path. So that's a really cool part of this episode. And then we jump into talking about freshwater fish and we kick it off with Australian bass. Now, Steve shares his tips for catching bass, the best techniques and places to target them, what to use and some handy tips and secrets that he uses on his trips. After this, I talked to Steve about chasing trophy golden perch in Windermere. Now, Steve has fished Windermere numerous times and has seen it change so much over the years. And he talks about how he had to change his fishing styles to find success. What worked 15 years ago doesn't work today. And Steve talks about those changes and how he approaches the waterway now. We then finish up with my favorite part of the interview, discussing Murray Cod. Now, we talk about why they are such a prized sports fish, and Steve explains why he respects them so much. We touch on trophy Copedon Cod and Steve's experience of chasing them, along with some other experiences and encounters he has had chasing the elusive giants over many years. I was blown away with the knowledge that Steve shared in this interview, and I tell you what, he knows how to fish. And I loved the opportunity to interview Steve and getting his opinions on fishing because we all think slightly different. So I'm sure you'll get so much from this episode, and I really hope you enjoy. 
Now, before we jump into this episode, I just want to let you know that the free Freshwater mini series is coming very soon. If you don't know what it is, and this is the first you've heard of it, well, get ready because the series is the first of its kind and we are releasing it free in the coming weeks. It's full of content, demonstrations, teaching you how to fish and where to fish, how to use lures, plus overviews of what lures, colors, sizes to use, and the gear for freshwater fish. And we include plenty of action as well. It's 100% free and we have more details coming soon. So please keep an eye out on social media over the next few weeks to find out the release date for this incredible series. Now, also want to mention, Steve and I recorded this episode at the Sydney Boat Show this year and we did have a bit of background noise because the show was very busy. So I apologize for this, but I'm sure it's not going to bother you too much. Thanks guys for listening in to this episode and I'm not going to leave you waiting any longer. So without further ado, let's jump in and talk to the one, the only Steve Starling. Welcome everyone to this social fishing podcast. Now I am very, very excited about this episode because I'm with the one and only Steve Starling, mate. Thank you very much for sitting down and talking to me today. You're welcome. And we're actually at the boat show, aren't we? So we've had (laughs) a very big few days. It's been a huge five days. I'm actually looking forward to uh, pulling stumps and heading home. Yeah, that's right. It's Monday, but it's great to see the crowd get amongst it and just enjoy the whole lot and every speaker there's always some there's something for everyone here isn't there oh it's been great and i think the the, the crowds we've had at the master classes uh, have been really good uh, especially considering i think overall numbers at the boat show seem to be down but we still yep. seem to be pulling the good crowds yeah so which is great. awesome so before we get into it i just mm. want to say a massive thanks to you and for your contribution to fishing because i grew up watching your stuff grew up watching videos of you i grew up reading your content and i know you've written so many articles and I imagine I speak on behalf of most of the Australians out there. So just want to thank your contribution to sharing your passion with us and sharing knowledge so that other people get out there and find success. So thank you very much for that. Well, that's that's very kind of you and it has been a a rewarding life and it's great to be able to actually make your living out of what you love doing. Exactly, exactly. So before we get in and talk about some freshwater stuff, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from Mm -hmm. and how this passion for fishing all started? Well, I'm a New South Wales boy. I grew up all over New South Wales. My father was a policeman and yep. got transferred around a lot. Yeah, I caught my first fish uh, when we were living in Kondoblin, no uh, way. in central in western fresh. New South Wales. At my first fish was a redfin. It was a redfin. I was going to yeah. get carp there, but there were a lot of <laughs> no, redfin well, around. This was before the carp days. There were right. no carp, but there were a lot of redfin. Uh, yep. We were actually fishing for eel-tail catfish and yellow belly on hand lines most of the time but i i used a lure i caught my very first fish on a lure my father yeah. won a little closed face reel on a solid glass rod in a chocolate wheel at the local fair and it was rigged up with a green um, frog pattern wonder wobbler yeah and he gave it to me and i stood there on the banks of uh, the lachlan river at gum bend throwing this thing in the water and watching it twinkle back through the water never expecting anything to grab it i was just going through the motions next minute there was a flash had a fish on. I, I stopped winding the handle and just ran backwards up the bank until no this half-pound redfin came flapping.
jumping out of the water and I was so excited. And I think I was I was hooked from that moment on. What age was that? I'd have been around six, I reckon. And you remember it? Yeah, I remember it really clearly. I took the fish home, put it on a sheet of fool's cap paper and traced around it and sent a letter and wrote an article basically about catching it and sent it to my grandmother. That was in the days of snail mail. We used to you know, no write way. letters to each other. And I think it was the birth of my love for fishing, the birth of my love for lure fishing, and the birth of my love for, for writing about it and communicating. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like it was meant to be. <laughs> That's right. That's... If, if that first fish had been an eel-tail catfish pulled in on a hand line like, like my mum and dad were doing, it just might not have captivated me quite so much as the lure thing. I only ever wanted to fish with lures after that. Yeah, <laughs> wow. That's, that's interesting how it all starts. And, and it's the same with me. I caught my first fish on a lure too. It was a tailor, mm-hmm. a silver wobbler. Isn't it funny that you're a freshwater guru and your first fish was in, in the salt? Yeah. And I'm probably better known for estuary and saltwater yep. fishing and my first fish was in the fresh. But It's funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just weird how it all happens. So as you've just mentioned, that's kind of how it would have started but sort of subconsciously for you. Then where did it go from for there in terms of writing? Because I know Mm. that would have been your very first Mm. sort of push into journalism. Was that how you first came into it? Well, yeah, and I used to write stories for my family and and my friends, even, you know, when I was sort of uh, 10, 11, 12, and my essays at school were often about fishing. the same. (laughs) (laughs) And... And a couple of my mates said, you ought to send one of these to a, to a fishing magazine. It took me probably longer than it should have. But when I was in my final year of high school, I finally had an article that I was happy enough with and I had some pretty ordinary photos to go with it. Yep. Sent it off to the old Australian angler, to Ron Calcutt, who was my idol. Uh, and and the old Australian angler was my Bible. And yeah. so it was with a great deal of trepidation that I bundled, bundled it all up and sent it off to him. And a couple of weeks passed, I'd actually forgotten all about it. And I got home from school one day and there was a letter waiting saying that he loved the article, was going to publish it. And there was a check in there for 50 bucks. I thought, how good's this? That's awesome. (laughs) And then it just would have just skyrocketed from there. Well, funnily enough, I think it put, I got nervous then. I thought, what about if I get my next one rejected or whatever? So it was probably 18 months before I actually wrote another article. I went to uni, so it was a pretty busy time. But then I started writing again while I was at uni. Uh, I trained to be a school teacher. I got sent, my first posting was to Burke uh, in Western New South Wales on the Darwin. As a school teacher? As a school teacher, English and history high school teacher. Um, Arrived out there, the furthest I'd ever been from the sea, I think. And um, unfortunately, the carp plague had come through about two years earlier and it was at its absolute height and it was hard to catch anything other than carp out of the Darling in those days. I caught a handful of small cod and yellow belly for the year I was there. I got a bit sick and tired of catching carp. They were fun at first, but then, you know, that was all you were catching. Uh, I was still writing articles and um, I thought, you know, I'm too far from the ocean. I wasn't enjoying teaching as much as I thought I would. And then this one of those serendipitous things, a job opportunity came up to be assistant editor of this magazine that I loved and was writing for and to work with Ron Calcutt. It had become Fishing World by then. And I said, yep, that's it. I'm pulling the plug on teaching after one year, moving back to the city and (laughs) working as uh, assistant editor on Fishing World. And within a few months, I was editor. Ron moved up to be publisher. And yeah, I spent four years there. And that was really, you know, that, that got me cemented into the whole fishing writing thing and being an editor. And then I went out freelance and uh, basically I've worked for myself ever since. Yeah, nice. So that was, that uh, that job was that, so you did four years, so it was like your early 20s? Yeah, I started there at 21 then... or 22, right. 22 I guess when I started as editor. Yep. And uh, when I was about 26, I got married. 
um, had two small kids and stupidly decided to go freelance, give up a, a weekly income and go and write. And we nearly starved. We, we were living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and eating a lot of blackfish that I was catching <laughs> off the rocks because I couldn't afford much else. But slowly I started to eke out a bit of a living. And some people will know the big thick book that I wrote that looked like a phone book. It was um, the, the book of Australian fishing. And I, I was writing that during that time. And that actually paid reasonably well when it finally got published and it sold well. Uh, and that sort of it got me started on the on the freelance track. And that kicked you, mm. kicked you up in the freelance. Mm. Nice. Because I know a lot of people, and I grew up idolising you, and you could see how you were writing so much. There's a lot of great content. Now, there's a lot of kids out there now. It's a different time now. Mm. I know you know a lot about the industry. If you're, if, the, if a young bloke's listening to this, or, or girl, mm. you know, that 17, 18, what advice would you give them? One, in terms of should they pursue that passion and go for it? And two, in... What would you? What should they do? What should they write mm. about? And should they follow it? Oh, look, definitely. I think if it's your passion, and people should follow their passion, whatever it is. I think there's nothing worse than just doing a job because you need to pay the bills. If you can somehow get lucky enough to build your, uh, at least even part of your income around the thing that you're passionate about, uh, and that might be landscape gardening, it might be building surfboards, or it might be fishing. And if it's fishing, I think they should go for it. But Things have changed, there's no doubt about that. You're not going to write an article and bundle it up in, a, in an envelope like I did with a couple of colour prints and send it off to a magazine. Yeah, right. There's not too many magazines left for a start. But what I'd be saying is look at the way it works these days. Go out and make some YouTube clips. Get your own YouTube channel going. Get some traffic going on it. Um, be a bit quirky. Do something different. It's hard to stand out of the pack now. I was lucky. You know, In the days that I was doing it, there were three or four magazines Yep. Um, I had a, a good education so I could write okay and I could take a reasonable photo so it wasn't hard for me to stand out of the pack these days though for a, a young bloke or a young girl to really emerge from what is a much more competitive field nowadays. They're going to have to come up with something fairly unique and quirky uh, or, and be really good at what they do and it's, it's what you've done um, with, with you, the whole inland fishing thing. You know, you've just... Uh, made such a passion out of it and turned it into a bit of a science and really explained it to people and and, I, and because of that you stand out of the pack but that's what people have got to do. You can't expect it to fall in your lap. You know I do some social media work for some of the, the tackle companies and every other day we get a an email from some kid saying oh will you sponsor me I caught this fish you know Oh, you need to do more than just catch a couple of fish and take a couple of photos and have a couple of Instagram followers to stand out from the pack these days. You need to work at it and come up with a point of difference. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. I, I totally agree. Um, so you think it's maybe it might, it's not just down the writing path now? So you're saying use the technology as it is. And like you said, there's that much technology out there that everyone's doing it. Mm. So you have to be different. And are you, are you saying more like maybe it's worth creating your own who you are and then seeing where that takes you based on the stuff you create or should you just go right and try and get it published or is that kind of not the way it is no anymore? i think i think you nailed it when you said you know find out who you are and then what people love these days i think is honesty and integrity yep uh, and if you come across as being a real person on youtube or a podcast or whatever else people will listen there's so much fake news and yes. so much artificial stuff out there these days that um, integrity and honesty tends to stand out and really 
I think it's what people are, are yearning for these days. There's so many slick productions around. You know, there's wonderful stuff being produced. Now, I love watching some of the fly fishing videos that some of the guys do these days with drone work and uh, just these amazing camera angles and everything. You're never going to emulate that in your first few years, so don't even try. Just do something that's honest. Talk to people about what it's like to lose a big fish, what it's like to fish and not catch anything, yep. what it's like to put in the the hard yards and the long hours in the freezing cold or the rain or the heat or whatever. And I think people will, will, will relate to that. Yeah, nice. So as a summary, go out, do something. Don't just say, will you sponsor me? Because mm. that's not how it works. It doesn't work. And it's more about creating who you are, doing what you love, and then someone will see you. They'll notice you and they'll probably come to you. Right? Or, you know, if you are going to make a pitch and that's fine, but make a professional pitch. Send them a short video, uh, a nicely written CV about yourself. Get some help to write it if you're not a great yeah. writer yourself. And put in a professional pitch that's not going to take up an hour of their time to look at. They can flick through it, have a look at some photos. Uh, it might be online, uh, so it's a PDF or whatever, and got a little video attached. And yep. they click the video, and there's 35 seconds of you being funny or honest or zany or spectacular and you're far more likely to kick a goal that way. And that's it, that's standing out from the crowd because mm -hmm. most people say, hey, can I have lures? That is, 2% would do that. Absolutely, and, and as soon as someone makes that effort, the guys at the tackle companies uh, or the publishing houses or the filmmaking places will sit up and take notice. Awesome, awesome, that's some really handy tips there. Now, I wanna talk a little bit about some freshwater fish because mm. I know you are all, well, all-rounder, <laughs> you've done everything. Yeah. Bass, I wanna touch on bass yeah. just quickly, I know they're close to you, they're one mm -hmm. of the closer freshwater fish to you. For someone who's never chased bass or someone living in New South Wales, what are some areas that are good for fishing for bass mm -hmm. and your go-to technique? Now, yep. I guess you, if, if one's different in a river than it is in a dam. Oh, very different. Yeah, they're a totally, you almost need to treat them as two different species, I reckon, stock, dam in, in uh, stock bass in dams, and I love catching them, but they're a very different fish to the to the wild fish. What, you know, it's taken me 50 years to learn that catching wild bass is all about staying in contact with them as they move up and down the rivers. Uh, they, they spend a big chunk of their life in the fresh water and then come March, April, May, they get the urge, this is the mature ones, yep. to drop downstream into the tidal waters in preparation for spawning. They'll spawn in July, August, September then they'll move back up the rivers. And it's all about that movement. And the last few years, what I've really discovered is I'm getting my best bass fishing really early in the season. Uh, season opens on the 1st of September, I'll be out there on the 1st of September. Right. And I expect to have my best bass fishing between the 1st of September and probably the first week of December. And that's as those hungry post-spawn fish are moving in fairly big numbers back up the rivers. And if you can intercept where they are, and that's all about how much rainfall there's been. You know, if there's a natural barrier to their movement, there's obvious ones like the Gorge on the Clarence River in northern New South Wales, but down where I live, there are less obvious ones, sandbars, places that they have difficulty getting over if the water level's down low. So you'll find a big plug of fish in the kilometre or two downstream from there. Then you get a bit of a fresh, they get over that barrier and they start to work their way up the river. And I find that by December, They've spread out through as much of the river as they can get to. They've taken up their home pools, they're on their snags, and they change the way they feed. They, a lot of people don't realise just how nocturnal bass are, yeah, right. especially in clear water. They'll tuck in under those undercut 
banks where the she-oak roots are and everything, they'll get right back in their holes and they don't like coming out much during daylight. Right. As soon as those light levels start to drop, they come out and they'll come right out and they'll roam around the whole pool. I've seen some amazing things in the last few years with uh, termite hatches with kilo plus bass rising to termites in the middle of the river, 40 metres from either bank wow. in, in half a metre of water, doing what trout would do. No you know? way. Yeah. Even though a, that's not their characteristic. No. And everyone thinks about them holed up in a snag, but this only happens in the last 20 minutes of light, you know, when they feel safe enough to come out. So they're quite a, a cryptic um, fish. They, they, they do like to hide. They do, they're very good at hunting in low light levels and they do a lot of their, their hunting at night, I believe, which is why that change of light period is, is so good for them because they're coming out and starting to, to look for a feed. But yeah, I love, I love chasing in, in dams, totally different. They school up, they move around. They're still trying to follow that same cycle. So they'll come down towards the dam wall, the lower basin of the, of the dam in March, April, May, hoping to get downstream. The wall stops them, they mill around. Uh, reabsorb their eggs, eat, eat bony brim if you're up north or whatever, bait fish down south, and then start to spread out back up the river again come sort of September, October, November, you know. So there is a there is a movement, but it's a, a different style of fishing and they don't tend to hole up as much. You can waste a lot of time in some impoundments fishing the bank, you know, what you would do in a river, looking for snags and casting your lures at the bank, and the schools of bass are sitting out in 20 metres of water, Somerset wow. Dam. Uh, it's, it's like open ocean fishing for them. Sometimes you're a kilometre and a half from the closest bank and you're in 25 metres of water and you've got a school of bass underneath you, some of which are 55 centimetres long, you know, and you're, you're vertically jigging for them like you would in salt water. It's just a, a totally different way of catching them. They pull just as hard though. Yeah, right. So. <laughs> So with a tip for, for fishing in the dam, mm. it, the sounder would be a sounder is vital. critical, absolutely critical. Um, yeah, it's one of those fisheries where I'd feel really lost without my depth sounder. Uh, but if your depth sounder's not great and you don't know how to read it, just look for the clusters of boats. That's not a bad gear. <laughs> nice tip, <laughs> nice tip. So, will they, so they'll hold away, but do they also hold on things like standing trees? Yeah, they absolutely. Still do that as and well? there's times when they'll... And there's some impoundments where they relate to the bank a lot. The, the impoundments that are a bit more river-like. So I fish some small ones down south like Brogo Dam, and it's... It's a flooded river, so yep. it's not particularly wide. They don't seem to do that schooling up thing out in the middle as much. They relate more to the bank. But even in somewhere like Somerset, they do talk about a couple of weeks of the year, there'll be an edge bite right. uh, where you're throwing jackals or uh, spinner baits or whatever right up into the edges and, and burning them out, and especially if there's any weed there. So they will move around. And that's the thing with staying in touch with them in dams. You really need, you either need to be fishing it regularly or have some good local knowledge about where they're at in the dam at, at that particular time when right. you go there. So that can be key, absolutely Oh yeah. Key. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, a summary of the lures that you mm. would use, if someone's never fished for bass, mm. what would be a couple of the key lures to have and use? I know it's a hard question because it's yeah, a situation. Yeah, and they'll take a lot of things. And there's, like I like to say, there's, a, there's many ways to skin a cat, but if I could only have three lures for uh, bass, they would be something with a blade, either a spinnerbait, or a soft plastic with a beetle spin arm yep. attached to it, uh, or or a um, a chatterbait, um, and though, you know anything with a metal blade and a bit of action is going to catch them in in some situations. I would I would want a subtle soft plastic without anything on it, just a paddle tail soft plastic for when they were a bit more subdued, and I'd want a surface lure. And when it comes to surface lures. 
I like I like the old fashioned, you know, jitterbugs and things mm -hmm. like that. Metal bibs seem to be good. They they you can keep them in the strike zone longer and just make them go chatter, chatter, chatter and then let them sit. The big thing with, with bass on, on surface lures, it's a little bit different to Murray Cod. It's all about the pauses. It's all about when I throw a lure in there and I'm really happy with where it's landed with the surface lure for bass. This is on wild bass in yep. the rivers. I'll just, I'll just let it sit there for as long as I can stand it, you know. And you, and you visualise the bass just underneath it, tilting up and just drifting up closer and closer and closer to it. And then you give it the tiniest little jiggle and half the time the thing just <laughs> detonates. You know, the longer you can keep it in there and the longer you can wait between movements. I mean, it's different. If you're trying to cover a lot of water and find where the fish are, you've got to fish a bit faster than that. But if you've got some confidence about a snag, if you've caught fish off it before, it just looks prime. Yep. Um, chuck that lure in there and, and take two minutes to bring it back. Right, so you would do that, that not just slow right hand slow, you do it slow the whole way back? Not the whole way back but, probably, but at least the first third yep. because they will follow it that far out. And then I'd just paddle it back. And it's amazing how often, especially as the light levels drop, you, you're already looking ahead for the next place you're going to cast <laughs> and you go to lift out of the water. A whooshka right next to the kayak, that yeah. one eats it. That's good fun. That happens with cod too, mm. get impatient with them. So... That's that's some awesome stuff on bass. I've learned a lot there myself. Now, Golden Perch is mm. one of your favourites too. Yeah. And specifically, I know you visit Windermere quite a lot. It is mm -hmm. a trophy fishery. And then again, every dam is different to every other dam. Why Windermere? Mm. And what are your go-to techniques and lures in Windermere? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I started going to Windermere in 89. Wow. So I've been fishing it for a long time. I've pro There's a couple of years in there where I probably didn't get there, but most years I get there at least two or three times. So I've seen it. And when I started fishing it, it was 100% full, and it was 100% full for several years, and then yeah, it started wow. to drop. And I haven't seen it over about 60% oh, for, for many, many years. But the biggest thing that I notice about the golden perch fishery in Windermere, and, and the reason I love Windermere, like you said, it's a trophy golden perch fishery. Yeah. You don't bat an eyelid at 55s there. You know, <laughs> No one really starts to get excited until they top 60. Uh, there's, some, there's some very big goldens in there. But it's changed so much. When we started fishing it, the only way we ever fished was from the bank. We had boats, but we'd use them to take us really? to a part of the dam. Then really? we'd get out and we always fished off the bank. I with could lures. count, Yeah, with lures. I could count on one hand the number of fish we caught out of the boat. And we used to go, oh, we got one out of the boat. We thought you had to be on the bank and it was floating diving plugs. And that was when Paul Neller's Deception Shrimp, that was the right lure at the right time for that dam because it was just perfect. It dived to the right depth. And unlike a lot of diving lures, as it got in closer and closer, it didn't continue to dive. It would actually start to come up particularly if you didn't get your rod tip down too low, and it would ride over the, the weed beds, and it was a matter of just fishing it up over the weed beds. And I reckon 60% of the yellows that we caught in those days, we watched them eat the lure no a rod way. length from the rod tip on those deceptions about you know 60 centimetres under the surface, and they'd follow it. You'd get a few out wider when it was down deep, but mostly it was, and it was all about the bank bite and the weed beds. And I think it was because it was 100% full the weed beds were very stable they were always there and the fish were often on the inside of the weed bed so you had a weed bed with a band on the inside of it and they'd often be in there as well you know so that was great and then it's all started to change we started to flick a few out of the boat we thought we can't, should be able to do this in reverse you know throw them into the weed beds and fish the outside edge yeah. and it worked um, but we still ended up fishing a lot off the bank, but then the water levels dropped and more importantly, and people are going to find this hard to believe, but I've seen it in so many fisheries, those fish wised up. 
to that presentation. Right. There is no doubt in my mind. And I know they're stocking up with new fish all the time. What, whether there's some kind of shared learning or whatever that goes on in an empowerment like that, but boy, oh boy, you'd struggle to go there and catch decent numbers of fish doing the things we did in the, in the late 80s and early 90s now. It all changed and it's been through several cycles. Now I don't fish off the bank at all. Yep. I fish in the boat, I fish out much further from the bank. I like the band of water between about uh, five and seven metres deep because there's a lot of snotty slime in, in Windermere. It's quite a nutrient-rich water and anything hard just gets this slime growing on it. So if your lure touches it, it tends to pick it up. So we, if you get out beyond about four and a half to five metres, that there's obviously not enough light penetration for that slime to grow and you can, you can fish contact methods that are making contact with the bottom. Uh, we went through a period of using, I can still remember the first time that Bushy and I went up there with, with TN jackals and absolutely cleaned up. It was just stupid fishing. You'd throw a jackal in at the bank, just roll it out, eight, 10, 12 turns, pause for two or three seconds, eight, 10 turns, bang! And it was just fish after fish after fish. That worked for about three, two or three seasons and then that stopped working. Yeah. And my go-to method these days is in that deeper water, working little blades, um, just just lifting them and, and dropping them uh, on the bottom, quite subtle little hops out in that deeper water on much lighter tackle. When we were chucking the hard bodies off the bank, we were using basically light, it was, it was bass or light barra tackle. Bait no casters, way. 20 pound line, you know, we didn't muck around. Um, nowadays, I use my brim gear. I use three pound braid, six and eight pound leaders, long fluorocarbon leaders. It's it's finesse fishing, and you get a 63 centimetre golden on on three pound braid and a six yeah. pound leader, and it's actually damn good fun. You know, <laughs> it, it really yes. is. Yeah, little eco gear uh, blades, the the little black ones are, are my favourite. The ZX, yep, the 40s and the 45s. Yep. yep. Um, and as as subtle a lift and, and drop as you can get while still getting feedback through right, the rod. That's so what I was going to ask. Just yeah. fast, lift it just fast enough to feel the zoop and only probably most of our lifts are only 30 centimetres, then back onto the bottom, then zoop. And what I'm finding the last couple of years is when you sit it back on the bottom, don't be in a hurry to lift it again. Give it a good, you know, five seconds. And quite often the fish will just come over and just suck it up off the bottom while you're doing that. You go to lift again and there's weight there and then you feel that big thump and got him on. And those little assist hooks don't miss them too They're often. They're good, aren't they? They are so good. So, yeah. it's, it's, so the reason it's changed, mm. do you reckon it's... The water height or it's pressure? I think it's, I think it's both. I think it's the fact that the water levels have been not only down but up and down, so you haven't had uh, the weed beds haven't been as well established. But I also think it's, I think it's about pressure. I just think that those fish, when you, when you do, you know, when you do fish in along the edges, um, you don't get anywhere near as many follows as you used to get. We, we always reckon if you've got a follow from a fish in there and you worked on it, nine times out of 10, you'd catch it. Might right. take you another six casts, might take you another 60 casts and a few lure changes, but you'd get that fish. But that doesn't seem to happen anymore. You get a follow from a fish and you just never see it again. You know, it, right. um, yeah, there's gotta be something going on there. The pressure is, and it does get a lot of pressure. A lot of people fish it now. So with fresh, and a lot with fresh water, everything's constricted mm. fish-wise, they can't travel. And I think that's going for every style of fishing in the fresh, but that's not a bad thing. It's great people getting out there fishing and it just then hones in a higher level of angler, doesn't mm. it? Obviously, oh yeah. you have to figure out what you do. Exactly. And it should always, there should always be a pattern and you should always be able to get them at some stage because they've got to eat 
Well, that's what, something I learnt from fishing the ABT brim tournaments uh, in the two th- you know, early 2000s. No matter how hard that brim fishery was, there'd be two or three guys in that 50-boat fleet who could catch fish. Right. And they just cracked the technique and the place and, and the pattern and they'd catch fish. The fish are almost always catchable if you can if you can crack that pattern. Yeah, for sure. So that's a technique. Just quickly, what time of year mm. is best in Windermere? Um, again, that's changed a little bit, but you know, if I had to if I had to pick a couple of weeks, it would be the last week of September through to the first week of November. So all of Oct- October was our prime month. It's about water temperature and it seems to be when it rises through that band from about 16 to, to 20 degrees. They, around 18 I really, really like as long as it's on a rising trend. Yep. And then once it gets over about 22, they tend to get a little bit tough again. I find that when it gets really hot in the height of summer, they can, they can be really tough. There's a a less pronounced but still quite good fishery where it drops down the other side in, in sort of March, early yeah. April. But there's guys catching them now in July and August Isn't in there? 10 degree water, you know, by finessing little blades but on the bottom. Numbers. And it's good numbers. It's not just a good, catch. It's... And they're good sized fish, you know. They seem to be in really good nick uh, in the middle of winter. I mean, you know, Windermere fish are always built like footballs, but I've seen some uh, some crackers come out of there recently in sort of late winter and very early spring. Aren't they an incredible fish? I've never seen a yellow belly like it. Like, I know we catch them in Burr and Jack and Blaring, mm. and they're big, but they're just not the same. No, as them. and they're I don't know why that is. Insane. They're like turbocharged. A lot of food in goals. there and not much competition, but they're, yeah, they're great fish. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about cod. Now, yep. I don't know what your favorite, I know they're up there. Are they, mm. are they one of your favorite fish to chase? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I put them up there. I'd say if I had to pick three fish that fascinate me more and sometimes frustrate me more than others, yep. uh, it's Murray Cod, Mulloway. And estuary perch and those three fish I've spent an extraordinary amount of time chasing they I've been very frustrated but I didn't catch my first estuary perch until I was 41 Wow! I didn't catch my first meter cod until I was well into my 50s you know they've been they've been my nemesis fish in a way but and the same with Mulloway I caught my first few Mulloway when I was in my 30s but I didn't catch them on lures until much later and so they're probably fish that I came to later in life and that I still find challenging enough to to really engage me mm. right so you reckon it's that challenge yeah i think so that that is why you because you never watch. quite work them out and no. cod, cod uh, can be so frustrating that's my uh, that's my backyard <laughs> and i totally agree so uh, is that why you think they're highly prized other than their size the size is a size? big thing you know i think what happened in australian fishing uh on the freshwater front we went through that impoundment Barra thing in yep. the in the nineties, and empowerment Barra became the go-to. Everyone wanted to go to Central Queensland, catch a metre plus Barra out of a Wagga or one of the other dams, and yep. it was a great thing, and it was so good for the tackle industry, the boat industry, the electronics industry. Then 2010, 2011, we had a couple of massive floods. Huge number of fish escaped over the walls of the dams. The barra fisheries collapsed, basically. They're yeah, rebuilding now, but they might never be the same again because those dams were low for a long time and a lot of them were fairly new dams. So I, we, we'll see we'll see glory days again on the, on the impoundment barra, but maybe not to that level. And I think the cod renaissance, as I call it, 
the, the rebirth of interest in cod and particularly in catching them on sport fishing tackle. I mean, a few blokes have been doing it forever, but it suddenly became the go-to thing. And it was, you want to catch a metre long, amazing looking critter out of fresh, fresh water. Nowadays, it's a Murray cod rather than an empowerment barra. So I think it's really helped fill that niche. Even I've noticed it's just the amount of people wanting to chase that big fish going mm. through the hard, cold winters. Yep just to catch it, it astounds me I how know. many people want to do it, but we all do it, it's crazy. Uh, so yeah. if, you, if you're if going to a new lake mm. and, and all of those lakes would have been new to you at yeah, some stage, yeah. I know, how many times you fish blaring? Oh, I need a couple. Couple. Yeah. So when you first approach a lake chasing a cod, mm. what is your approach? Do you have an approach yeah. or what do you do? And I think a lot of my approach is probably based on repeating patterns that worked in other dams. Okay. So, and, and some, of it's, some of it's subconscious, I think, you don't even, consciously think about it but you recognize bits of bank that remind you of bits of bank where you caught a cod in Burrenjuk or Copeton or whatever and then when you go to somewhere like Blowering you see a bit of bank like that and suddenly your you know your anticipation level clicks up a notch or two and you fish better so it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy you fish better in that bit of country and then eventually you catch a fish there so then you only ever fish bits yep. of bank that look like that and I think that's a big mistake that I make it the same as anybody else because oh, cod come from you know better than anyone cod come from some pretty weird places at times where you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily go that's prime territory for yep. a cod. And I think, I don't know if you agree, but I think one of the things that we're learning about cod is that they're, they're pretty mobile in Very. those big dams, aren't they? They don't just sit on a snag like people think they do. They move around. Yeah, they're, they're very interesting. They, they're very structure-orientated, mm -hmm. but we've come to learn that we get better success from the ones that are hunting, and when they're mm -hmm. hunting, they're moving and chasing bait. So yeah. we don't know a lot about freshwater compared to salt because you've got documentaries, footage on yeah, the salt. Yeah, yeah. Fresh, you kind of got to guess. Right. And we think that they actually do round up bait. And I think you touch on a really important point there. There's only one reason that a cod is in two metres of water, 10 metres from the edge of a dam, and that's because it's feeding. Yeah. It's looking for something to kill and eat. Yeah. Whereas if it's sitting out in 14 metres of water on a log, it might be sulky and have the worst lockjaw that you're ever going to encounter. You know? exactly. So targeting that area, I know guys like Chris Cleaver, they just concentrate on the shallows and the edges. He doesn't fish out, out from the edge much at all when he's chasing cod, and, and that's because he works on that theory. If they're in there, they're in there for one reason exactly yeah. you can you can still get success where they're hanging mm. out deeper especially when you know they're in high concentrations like rocky banks but it's about figuring out where you got those hunger runs, especially mm. with the trophy fish mm. so what are i know you fish wyangler a bit yep any tips for wyangler <laughs> i'm still sussing out wyangler i've had a really good strike rate at wyangler as far as numbers of fish per session but i just cannot find the big ones and i you know i think i fell into a bit of a trap there I started getting success on reasonably, not small lures, but, but smaller, smaller lures, some small, smallish chatterbaits, and I was just getting fish all the time. And you just fall into that slot where you stick with that. And what I should have done was go to much bigger lures and fish slightly different country. And I, you know, that's probably the way to catch a big fish, but I love catching fish. Yeah, um, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, and you can get sucked into that. You've got to decide, are you a trophy fisherman? And you know what, I turned 61 this year and I more and more decided that I just want to do the things I enjoy doing. You know, I, I don't know if I've got too many Copeton winters left in me where I can yes. go up there and do five, six, seven days in a row for one strike 
in minus three degree temperatures at four o'clock in the morning. But you've you know, done it once. I've done it, it yeah, I've done times. it a couple of times yeah. and I've caught a few. Um, and I sort of feel like, I don't know if I need to keep doing that, you know? Yep. I, I'd love a, a metre 20 plus type fish. I got a metre 15 one for my wife, Jo. She's she's caught two bigger, you know, this is the, she didn't, didn't hadn't caught a cod until what, four or five years ago and had never chased them or anything coming from the Northern Territory. And she's now caught two bigger ones than me. That, <laughs> that stings, but at it's least I can way. claim that I was the skipper. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Take a percentage, a small mm. percentage mm. of it. So I know what Copeton's get us a lot of pressure now, but if you were to never go there, what would what's the go with Copeton? Is it finding the bait, looking for good structure? Yeah. What did you work out when you were up there? Well, I think conditions. Um, all our success came in in really calm, flat conditions. Uh, right. So weather, you mean? Yeah. So high high pressure, uh, slick, slicky, calm water. And I mean, we were co concentrating a lot on surface, uh, you know, surface lures and wake baits and things like that. So you can, I'm sure you can catch them. And we caught some down down deeper on on spinner baits and things. But we wanted to catch them on the surface because that was the sort of fun thing to do at the time. And it just seemed like that was a waste of time if there was any chop on the water. So nice and flat, uh, away from other people. Yeah, I think they're incredibly boat shy or boat aware and people aware. Uh, yeah, so and bait and, and up there it's those spanglies. Took me a, a while to work it out, but there's a there's a pretty interesting thing goes on up there. I've written about it and I've I've told a few people about it, and I don't. Some some agree with me and some don't, but. What happens up there in winter, there's a really distinct midge hatch that happens mostly in the early hours of the morning. And I've actually shone torches yeah. in the water around the edge and there's little wriggly midge larvae all swimming up. Now that, I believe that midge hatch drives that entire cod fishery because wow. you start watching then in a bay and you'll see these little subtle rises and it's the bobby cod, the spanglies, taking no the emerging way. midge larvae just under the surface and their little fin tips and that come out of the water. And some of them aren't so little. Some of them are 30, 35 centimetres long. It took me ages yeah. to work out what they were. I said, I, you know, I asked a few people, what are those fish that are coming up on the midges? And they said, oh, it must be redfin. They ain't redfin. I've thrown that many lures into Cape and I've never seen a redfin. I don't think there's too many <laughs> redfin left in there. It used to be full of them. I reckon the cod have eaten them all. Yeah. But there is lots and lots and lots of spangled perch from, you know, that all fit in the palm of your hand up to things that are 30, 32 centimetres long. And those midge larvae and that, that hatching midges bring them up and I reckon that's when that's when the cod have the optimum opportunity to pin them against the surface wow. and smack them. Because yeah. I talk to a lot of fly anglers, mm -hmm. and I know fly anglers who go, how come you don't do this when you're lure fishing? But they're so keyed into the environment and mm. understanding what goes on that if we think a little bit more like that, it leads to things like yep. you've just explained. That yep. is incredible. And for that very reason, I get excited when I see swallows Yep. ripping around up there because the swallows are on, although often by that stage, the midges have already hatched and they're in the air. They're a big midge. They're like a big fat mosquito. Yeah. And they're not, you don't get dense clouds of them like you do on Eucumbean and some of the trout lakes where the trout feed on the midges, but they're still fairly prolific. You look in the air, you'll see them, you know, around the place. And usually that's seven o'clock, 7.30 in the morning. And I think the hatching phase that had the spanglies up is all over by then. Yeah. Quite often you see those swallows on a morning when you've had three strikes, you know, between 
uh, an hour before first light and an hour after first light, which seems to be the, the witching hour up yeah. there. The mornings are at least twice as good as the evenings yeah, mornings at Copeton. Yeah. I think mornings are the go in most environments Yeah, that's too. interesting, isn't it? So what, um, what's your go-to lure to chase, Scott? Like, what's your favourite way to get? I know there's different waterways. Yeah. So if you're in an impoundment, yeah. what would... Oh, look, I, I love spinnerbaits. As I said before, I love them for bass. I've, I've been a big spinnerbait fan since the early 90s. Um, and I, I always feel confident when I'm, I love the feedback you get from a spinnerbait. Yep. I love the fact that you can fish them through the whole water column from, from the surface to, to the bottom. Um, but I also accept that cod have seen a lot of spinnerbaits. Yep. Uh, I don't think they're as effective on cod as they were in the, in the 90s and the, and the first uh, 10 years or so of the, the new millennium. Uh, so I think we've got to look at other stuff. I've got a, my favourite lure for Copeton and I've caught um, I caught a couple of meteries and a lot in the 90s and stuff on it. Um, a jackal, Mikey Senior. Yes. It's a jointed weight, but they don't. Even, they never even brought them into Australia. I brought one in, and I've managed to not lose it. It's on about its third set of hooks now. It's hardly got any paint left on it. And yeah. it's funny how you get a confidence go-to yes, lure like that. But, definitely. But you know, talk to the guys at Copeton, and when when, the, when it really first started to take off in a big way up there, it was all about cup-faced, uh, quite quite noisy sort of lures yeah, yeah right. you know that uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. winged sort of lures and all, all that stuff and now it's all subtle but you watch it'll go full circle and it'll go back to the walkers and yep. things you know because the fish start to wise up and those fish are seeing heck of a lot of lures the people pressure up there is getting to be a problem um sadly there's a lot of guys running around who haven't got a big idea you know they're out at night and they're shining their spotlights on where they want to fish checking out all the spots yes. first and then casting the lures massive error got the the ghetto blaster cranked up and you can hear the <laughs> the rattle of the uh, the bottles on board yep. and blokes hollering and yelling and i try and get as far away from from those guys as i can because i don't think that's working in your favour. No, no way at all. <laughs> I see guys navigating around blaring with a spotlight. Mm. You're basically done. Like a spot's yep. ruined. Yep. Avoid it all you can. If you ever have a question, do you use a head torch with cod? Just don't. No. I, I, I will use one, but with the red on and only down in the bottom of the boat to tie a knot or whatever, I hate getting any, any light on the water. Yep. hate making any noise. If you can avoid even using the electric motor, I mean, if you can set up with a wind drift or whatever and just... I think being quiet is really, really important. It's going to be the way forward, yeah. definitely, with the pressure. Well, mate, that uh, that was really interesting. <laughs> there was quite a few things we touched on there. I really appreciate you sharing some light on those topics because, and, and we could talk forever about oh, yeah. it. What is before we finish? What is your biggest cod? One hundred four. I caught a one hundred four, one hundred three. So many in the high 90s that I've sort of lost count of them. And yeah, Joe's yeah, yeah. caught a 109 and a 115. But even more, what stings even more is she got her a 109 and a 115 within 45 minutes of each other. That was at Copeton. At Copeton, early morning. Nice. Yeah, oh. Is your 104 from Copeton or yeah, is that the one you yeah. caught on the Murray River? I got, I got a 104 at Copeton. My 103 was the one I got out of the kayak. Um, in the Murray? Down on the Murray. Yeah. That was a nice fish. That was a, such a beautiful looking fish. And I... I don't think I've been more stoked about a fish for oh, probably 20 years. I was shaking so much when I got that fish. I got buried me in the snag yep. and I was able to get it out and oh, just, yeah, I was just so excited to catch that fish and I'd put, we'd put four days in so for one say. other hit, yeah. um, a couple of little yellows, but one other possible cod hit and we were running out of time filming and yeah, just one of those. One of those things, but it was also one of those things. We we got bogged trying to launch the boat 
uh, we had a camera boat, Joe and I were in kayaks, and um, we spent hours digging this bloody car out of the bog, and I kept looking at this one snag pile about 200 metres further along the river. Just something drew me to it. I'm like, if I could just get in here, I reckon I'd get a fish there. And finally, we, th we got the car out. We didn't even put the boat in the water. We threw the kayaks in the water and paddled down there. And second wow. cast, I, I, I nailed that fish. It was just like That's it was awesome. meant to be. <laughs> yeah, very meant to be. That was your first metre cod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After all those years of trying, oh, and all the time that I'd put in at Mulwala. And I'd never even, I'd never, I can't even say I've hooked and lost a big cod before right. that. You know, the yeah. biggest cod I'd caught prior to that was was probably, you know, high 80s. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's so it took, so it took a long time, but that kind of made it doubly uh, special yeah, when it put it in a nutshell. They're hard to catch. Mm. So one last tip for cod: what, is there, if there's one thing you can say for someone who's new to cod or mm. chased for a while, just one thing about them as an angler, one tip. Yeah, um, don't give up. I think that's the main thing. You know, put the, every cast you've got to you've got to believe that that next cast could be the one that yep. that big green model beer keg emerges behind it and, and nails it. You, if you've got a lure in the water, you're in with a chance. And people catch them at midday in bright sunlight conditions. So, you know, you're not going to catch one without a lure in the water. So hang in there. Well and truly. Now tell me, just before we finish up, about Fishertopia. Yep. Joe and yourself started it mm. a little over, a bit more than 12 months ago. Yep. Uh, it's an incredible site where you're sharing content Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so fishotopia.com. Uh, we've got a big free section there, which we're, we're building all the time. We've just launched a, a daily almanac in there. So each day tips come up pertinent to that season. And there's also a map of Australia there that you can click on the different regions and get a, 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 an idea of what's going to be biting yeah. uh, at that time of the year in that particular area. So that's all part of the free site. There's lots of other stuff and links to our blogs and stuff. And then we've got a paywall behind which it's subscription only, um, $5.50 a month or $55 for a year, which works out to like 15 cents a day. So it's not too bad. Uh, you join up, you get in there, you get access to heaps of stuff. But we're finding what the guys like the most, guys and girls like the most, is the um, we have a basically our version of Facebook in there. We call it the Clubhouse Wall. Uh, it's a bit like the old forums, yep. you know. And forums seem to have died out, but gosh, it's popular. People love being in a safe space. With we've got just shy of 400 members at the moment, so they're in there. They know there's only those 350, 400 people. They know a lot of them. They can they can trust people. They can be honest and open and ask questions and not get ridiculed, not get the garbage that sometimes goes on in yep. in open uh, social media. So a lot of them are finding it worth being in there just for that alone. But we do the the beer with Starlo uh, interviews, which I'm going to do one with you in yep, the next few months. Sure. And the short versions of those are out in the free sections, but the, the full length interviews are uh, are all in the membership area. So yeah, people are finding it really valuable. So hopefully it's going to work. You know, we needed to find something to do after in the sort of new media age. The magazines, for better or worse, are uh, gradually disappearing. People aren't reading magazines anymore. They expect yeah. to get their information online. So we're trying to give it to them. I think you've done that really, really well. So if people who are members, they can ask you questions directly. Absolutely, they get direct access to me. I'd say 24 hours a day, but you know, I, I sleep and I go fishing. <laughs> yeah. So it might take me a few hours or whatever to get back to them. If I'm on the road, it might take a day or two, but they always get an answer and they have direct access to me. And I'm on the wall all the time answering people's questions and, and stuff like that. And does it matter what you target? Is it, no, you cover everything, don't you? I suppose the only thing we're not big on 
uh, and we leave that to people like Tim Simpson is is blue water game and sport right. fishing. Very but anything thing. other than anything inside the continental shelf to the middle of Australia, we'll cover it. Nice, <laughs> nice. That's fishotopia. Fishotopia.com. Awesome. So go check that out. Salt or fresh. I've seen some of the stuff and like you've done for the rest of your life, however many years you've been riding for, it's all now building up in there. So thanks heaps for that Starlo. No you worries. You have a talk, another one on stage. Yeah, I do, I'm up there soon. I appreciate it, so thank you very much. No worries, in tight lines. And there you have it guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast with Steve. I really enjoyed sitting down and learning from one of the greats in our industry. He covered so much content and I'm sure it will help you on your next trip. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and leave a review. If you enjoyed it, screenshot your podcast app and tag me on Instagram or your Facebook story and share with us where you are listening to the podcast from. Do you listen on your way to work? at work, going for a run or even on your road trip heading off fishing. I would love to know, so please send it through. Thanks again for joining us today. Uh, And again, I want to thank Steve, not only for sitting down and spending some time with me today to do this interview, but also for his contribution to fishing in Australia. That's it for today's guys. Thank you very much. And now it's time to get out in the water and go fishing. Fishing.